My name is Sally, and I am a marijuana addict. And today I have three years, eight months, and 14 days free from marijuana and all other mind and mood altering chemicals. And that really is a miracle to me that I have that much time of sobriety. And I still really feel with that time like I'm in an early recovery. And maybe that's because I've actually used marijuana for over 30 years. So here's my story. I grew up in Miami in the 70s, and and what started out as a very loving family. Um, I had, you know, two parents that loved me. I had an older brother who taught me to read when I was three or four. So I ended up skipping kindergarten, and I started first grade when I was five years old. And as you probably heard, (laughs) everything that you need to know, you learn in kindergarten. So I always felt that I lacked something that everyone else had, the social skills that everyone else had. I was always the youngest and most immature person in whatever grade I was in and um, just didn't feel like I fit in from a very early age. And I also had an extremely active imagination. I remember um, seeing the Dr. Doolittle movie when I was very young, and Dr. Doolittle could talk to the animals, and that was awesome. And he was my imaginary friend. So I had him and some other imaginary friends, and from a very early age, I lived in a privately defined world. but my life was pretty good. Um, neither of my parents really did any drugs. They didn't really drink either, other than, you know, Mogan David or Manischewitz wine that we had for Jewish holidays because we were, we were Jewish. Um, and my mom was, she was really different. She was into yoga and meditation and health food way before any of those things were popular. So it was really kind of an embarrassment for, for me and the rest of the family. Um, even though you know, we loved her, she was, she was kind of embarrassing. But she actually had a problem with food because she would eat really healthy, but then after dinner she would kind of sneak into the kitchen and eat leftovers by herself and binge on cookies and had a problem with food. So I remember she went to Overeaters Anonymous meetings. She was an OA, and I remember growing up that we had this needle point of the serenity prayer hanging in our dining room. Um, I didn't really pay much attention to it, but, um, you know, I wasn't really that familiar with the, the program or the, the 12 steps, but I do remember that serenity prayer hanging up in our, in our house growing up. Um, and I really do feel like I probably inherited my tendency toward addiction from her. So my immaturity and my awkwardness got worse. Um, I ended up going to a public junior high school when I was 11, and this was after spending six years at a private Jewish school, Hebrew school, with all the same kids. And it was a really hard transition. I was really insecure. And I spent a lot of time worrying about what other people thought about me. And I was really anxious. I had a lot of anxiety. And I remember when I was about 11, I started babysitting because I always loved kids. I, I really loved kids. And I wanted to babysit. But it made me so nervous being in charge of these kids at that early age I would actually throw up when I would get to the people's house that I was babysitting at. Um, just had a lot of, a lot of anxiety. Um, and then my life really started to change when uh, I was 13 and my parents decided to get separated. And my mom actually moved, right, moved out of the house. Um, she moved out right after my 13th birthday. And I remember just being really, really angry with her. Um, you know, not an easy time anyway, you know, going through puberty and just really mad at, mad at my mom. And around that same time is when I ended up smoking pot for the first time. I smoked at a party. Um, I don't really remember, you know, specifically feeling great or feeling high. Um, and then I actually smoked with her um, in her new place. And, again, I don't, I don't remember much about smoking other than when I smoked with her that time, 
we smoked out of an apple. You know, we didn't have anything else to smoke out of, so they carved an apple, and we smoked out of an apple. And I just thought that was so cool. And that memory of, you know, one of the first times of getting high really has led, you know, to my romanticized view of pot. That really romanticized how I thought about pot for a long time. Um, and that memory of smoking out of the apple with my mom ended up really being one of my last memories um, of, of my mom because when I was 15 years old, um, she died suddenly in a car accident. And it was just, it was such a shock. I just, I remember feeling just so terrible about it, but just being shocked and not being able to really grieve for her um, and just barely even crying. You know, at her funeral, everybody else was crying, and I don't, I don't think I even really cried. Um, and around that time, I also started drinking beer because I started hanging out a lot at my aunt and uncle's house, and they always had beer in their fridge. And um, this is my dad's sister. He had, she had four sons, my aunt, and I was always the daughter she never had, so I was hanging out there a lot. And I would drink and get high with my cousins. And I just remember I liked being in that altered state. I didn't have to feel sad. I didn't have to feel, deal with the reality. I didn't have to worry about what other people thought of me. So, you know, that, that stuff started pretty early for me. So then I went away to college when I was 17. And I continued to do a lot of drinking. And pot really wasn't much available back then. But I do remember being at a fraternity party and I had the realization that I just really wasn't into drinking as much and that I preferred getting high to drinking. <clears throat> Excuse me. And although I did continue to do both for many years and, you know, getting drunk and high was a great way to escape my feelings, you know, feelings about the grief of my mom that I hadn't processed and my insecurities about not being as good as other people. Um, so in college, I met my first husband, and we did do a lot of partying together also, and that was just the norm with our friends, um, you know, just a lot, of, a lot of partying. So over the next 30-plus years, I continued to abuse alcohol, but I would always prefer to get high when it was available. And for a long time, I was always just smoking other people's weed. I never had my own weed. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, um, and actually got divorced from my first husband and was living in my own apartment, that I started buying my own weed. And um, I remember that was just a really hard time. The divorce was really rough because basically, without getting into too much detail, he, my husband, fell out of love with me. He stopped loving me, and um, he just stirred up all these feelings of, of abandonment from when my mom died and just, you know, was really depressed. And shortly before that, my aunt, who was, you know, like my second mom died, and um, my stepmom at the time, my dad's second husband, also died from cancer. And there was just a lot of feelings of loss and abandonment. And, um, and I did go to therapy some, and I have done that, you know, over the years. I've been to a lot of therapy. But what I really preferred to do was just self-medicate myself, and I did that. I self-medicated with weed and, and with booze. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't feel my feelings. And, you know, around that time, my friends from work were all smokers, so they taught me how to roll joints, and, you know, I finally had my own weed. And I remember um, one of the days early on of all this, you know, one of my friends from work got me high at lunch, and I just thought that was so crazy. Like, I couldn't even imagine getting high during the middle of a work day. That had never occurred to me before. You know, I pretty much had reserved my partying for times that it was somewhat more appropriate, but... We were getting high in the middle of a work day, and we got away with it, and we had a lot of fun. And um, my life was pretty much revolving around, you know, drinking and getting high. But because that's what all of my friends were doing at the time, it, it seemed normal, and it didn't seem out of control. 
And I loved feeling stoned because, you know, it numbed my feelings. Um, and it also made me feel really talkative and uninhibited. It wasn't socially, as socially awkward and a shy feeling. You know, I wasn't so much worried about what other people thought of me until I sobered up. And then, <laughs> and then I would remember all the crazy things I had said and done with no filter whatsoever, and I would continue to replay and replay all the, the stupid things that, that I had said and done. But you know, that didn't really stop me. So, you know, we talk about marijuana addiction being a progressive illness, and that was definitely my experience. I mean, I really feel like I was that frog in a pot of water that doesn't realize that the water is getting warmer and warmer until they're, until they're, they're boiling. They are freaking boiling in a pot of water. You know, for a long time, I had a good job, I had enough money, and, you know, I partied, but it, it always seemed like it was kind of in control. And over the years, I did do other drugs. You know, I, I tried coke and ecstasy, and my brother introduced me to mushrooms, and we would trip. We went, I had, went to one awesome Grateful Dead show, and we would go to fish shows, and we would always just have a blast. But over the time, you know, over all that time, marijuana was just always my drug of choice. So in 1995, I met the guy who eventually became my second husband, um, and he was completely accepting of me, and that included my marijuana use. And we got married in 1997, and shortly after that, I got pregnant with our twin sons. And um, at the time that I got pregnant, I was able to stop my partying. Um, at the time, you know, the water wasn't boiling that much in the pot. It was kind of a slow simmer, and um, so it was okay. It was, I was okay to stop partying during my pregnancy. And I remember even feeling some relief that I wasn't smoking anymore. And I had the thought that maybe I could just stop getting high altogether afterwards and just be done with that. Um, but that was really, really short-lived because my friend got me high on the way to the hospital to see my preemie babies um, my, when they were in the NICU. My kids were born early. Um, they were in the NICU for a month after they were born. Um, the first month of their lives they spent in the NICU. And um, so, yeah, I got high on the way to, to see my, my preemie babies that were fighting for their lives in the hospital. And, um, you know, I think about the, the 12 questions. You know, Dennis read the 12 questions just a little while ago. And of all of the 12 questions that we ask ourselves to see if we have a problem with marijuana, and, you know, it's supposed to be if you have a problem with one of them, then you might have a problem, or you say yes to one of them, then you have a problem with marijuana. I, I've actually answered yes to all of those questions. <laughs> every single one of them, except for the last one. And that last one is, have friends or relatives ever complained that you're using is damaging your relationship with them? And all my friends were fellow stoners, and they, you know, <laughs> these were people who thought it was a good idea to get high before, you know, visiting my babies in the hospital. So, um, you know, that's the one question that, that, I, that I never could answer yes to. Um, so I've been married to my second husband for, it's been almost 23 years now, and I'm very lucky to have him in my life. Um, he is the polar opposite of my first husband because he does love me unconditionally, and that, and that really is a wonderful thing. Um, and I try not to take that for granted, but it also really means that he enabled my using for years and years. And um, in his defense, he didn't really know how out of control my using was getting because I hid a lot of it from him. But it was hard because when I did tell him, I think I really have a problem with smoking pot, he would just downplay it every time and be like, oh, it's fine, you know, it's just your crutch, you're, you know, it, it's not. I mean, he just, it, it was just something that he accepted as a, as a part of me, and he didn't t take my concern seriously. So for the first few years after, after my sons were born, our sons were born, 
I only smoked at my friend's house. And um, as my son started getting a little older, I was spending more and more time away from them, um, going away for like girls weekends whenever I could, because it was just harder for me to be around them. And um, as much as I loved them, I, I just was really anxious about being around them. And, and I remembered it, it felt like I was back to that immature 11 year old babysitter all over again, because they, they would argue and fight with each other, and I would feel like I had no control over, over them, and it just was a bad feeling. And um, I dreaded having to spend time alone with them. And, of course, I had to spend time alone with them. They were my kids, and my husband had a work schedule, and, you know, I had a lot of time with, with my kids, and um, it really stressed me out. So I started to smoke at home. And uh, that's when the water in that proverbial pot, you know, just really started boiling and really started heating up because I would – start smoking before I picked them up at school or at their grandmother's house. And I would try and act normal around them and other people. And so people wouldn't realize that I was high. But, of course, that was a huge delusion. Um, you know, I reeked of weed. I was acting all crazy. And um, I wasn't really fooling anyone um, except my kids when they were really young. Um, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing a, a really good job of hiding it. Um, and... It, it got to the point, it did progress, it got to the point where I would get up and I would get high in the morning before I'd go to work, I'd get high at lunch, and then I'd get high on the way home. And then when I would run out of weed, I'd go to my friend's house and smoke with her. And I was spending all my money, uh, or not all my money, but a lot of money on pot. And, and then I, I would always steal pot from her. I would steal little bits of pot from her because she always had plenty of weed and she made really good money. She had a good job and I figured she wouldn't miss it. So... You know, I would steal weed from her, and then I would go over, over to her house any chance I got to get away from my kids and, and to party. And if I was going to an actual party, I had to get really high on the way there to deal with my social anxiety, and then I would keep partying as soon as I got there. And I just, I could not feel high enough, no matter how much I smoked. Um, you know, it just got to that point, my resistance got really high, and I just kept chasing that good fun feeling of being high and it wasn't there anymore. I was just really smoking just, just to feel normal. Um, and then at some point I did realize that drinking was giving me really bad headaches. And so I stopped drinking and that was really no problem. Weed was really my drug of choice and I'm really grateful that, you know, I didn't have that kind of addiction, real addiction to alcohol that I, I could have and probably should have after all my alcohol abuse. So at that time, our job situation had changed, and neither my husband and I were making very good money, you know, plus we had the expense of raising two kids, but I was still spending a lot of money on pot, and I was high all the time at my job, and I didn't make my sales quota, so I ended up getting let go from my job, and um, it was just a really bad time, started feeling really, really bad about myself, and around that time, I started trying to really, trying to quit. But it never lasted more than a week or so, and my self-esteem got really, really bad because I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop smoking. I couldn't stop spending money on weed, money that we really didn't have. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was jobless for a little while. Then my husband was a manager at the time at Domino's Pizza, and I started working there. But <laughs> I was still getting high all the time, especially when I was delivering. And Smoking, all that smoking was making me cough a lot. I started peeing a lot, peeing myself a lot after having <laughs> having carried twins. I would um, pee like pretty much every time I would start coughing. And my tolerance was just so high, I 
I literally became a slave to marijuana. I was a slave to marijuana, and I was not enjoying it at all. I was doing it to feel normal and because I couldn't stop. And my brother at the time had gotten sober. He had had an addiction. He actually was addicted to hallucinogens, hallucinogenics. And uh, he had gotten sober and was sober and was going to AA meetings. And he convinced me that I should go to AA meetings. And so I tried. And I told myself, you know, I belonged in an AA meeting because I definitely had abused alcohol in the past. But I just, I couldn't go more than a few weeks without picking up again. I've got a whole drawer full of the silver start over chips, welcome chips that they give out at AA meetings. And I really did try for a while, but I just could not get any traction at AA meetings. And then I tried a few NA meetings, and that didn't work either. And it's kind of an understatement to say that smoking had definitely stopped being fun because at that point I was coughing so much. I was not only peeing, but I was making myself throw up. Um, and that was bad enough if I was, you know, sitting outside on my back steps. But a lot of the times I was still smoking and driving. I mean, that was my thing. I'd love to smoke and drive. So I would have to pull over and throw up and then keep driving and smoking. And it, it was just, it was a mess. So finally, I received the gift of desperation. I had a really particularly bad episode of smoking and vomiting, and I knew I had to stop somewhere. I had to stop somehow. Somehow this, this craziness had to stop. And it was less than a month before my 50th birthday, and I just didn't want to be this pathetic stoner anymore. And, you know, my brother mentioned that there was a thing called Marijuana Anonymous. And when I went online, the closest meetings were an hour away. And uh, I was like, that's not going to work. Um, and there were phone meetings listed, which I thought was really weird. I had never been to a phone meeting, and I didn't think that was going to make sense. But on January 12th of 2017, I called into my first meeting, and that is my sobriety date. That was the day that I was able to put down the marijuana. And sorry, this is the part where I get really emotional. Because on that very first call, I discovered that I had found my tribe. I had really honestly thought I was the only person in my age with a problem with marijuana. And to find this fellowship of other pot addicts was just the most amazing discovery for me. And I had felt so alone and ashamed for years. And to hear that there were other people who really understood exactly what I was going through, that changed my life. And I had no problem admitting I was a marijuana addict because I had known it for years. I had known for years, even though no one believed me or took it seriously. And I was willing to admit that I was powerless over marijuana. Um, you know, that that was something that started me on this journey of sobriety. And that paradox of powerlessness never ceases to amaze me because by admitting that I was powerless over marijuana, it allowed me to stop using it and to put it down. And it wasn't easy. This wasn't easy. But it was so much easier than the times that I had tried stopping on my own. And learning about the detoxing from marijuana was really a critical part of my early recovery. Um, I mean, it makes complete sense to me that my brain and body would be experiencing withdrawals after having so much THC for so many years. Um, and I did have a lot of symptoms. You know, I had insomnia, I had stomach issues, I had sweats, I had um, an emotional roller coaster, you know, no appetite. Uh, you know, it's the things that I've heard a lot of people go through. But it did get better. And 
I came into these, these phone lines, and I did everything that you recommended I do. I downloaded the Marijuana Anonymous app. I got copies of the book, Life with Hope, and the workbook. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. And I attended 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, which is not hard on the phone, um, especially when we have multiple meetings a day. And I eventually drove an hour to some of those Tuesday night MA meetings and got to meet some of those, the, the voices I've been hearing on the phone and, and meet some of the people who have been really, really instrumental in my recovery. So when I had about 60 days sober, my sponsor recommended that I chair meetings. And um, at the time, there was an opening for the Wednesday noon newcomer meeting. And, and I definitely didn't want to do it. It was way outside my comfort level. But I did. I started chairing that meeting, and it really did help me stay sober. And I don't chair as many meetings now, um, mostly because of my work schedule. But I do recommend it, especially to people in early recovery. Um, chairing meetings and, and being of service in that way really helped me so much. Um, and then another thing that I do is I help answer the Women in Recovery hotline uh, phone number. And, you know, nine times out of ten, I'm just giving out the code to the women's meeting. But every once in a while, I mean, just this past week, somebody calls who's really hurting and looking for help. And I'm so grateful to be able to share my experience with them and let them know how much this fellowship has helped me and be so glad that they found these phone lines and you know, hope that they stick with it too. Um, and, and one of the things I, I heard early on, too, is that you have to change your playmates and your playground. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have, have been able to stay sober, get sober and stay sober if I stayed friends with all those stoner buddies. And, and you know, at first it was painful to lose contact with people, but what I realized is that my closest friendship was based on our love of marijuana and, and that it was sad to discover it, but that was really the only thing we ever had in common. There was really no substance to our, our relationship, to our friendship. And I honestly don't miss the parties and being around people who are wasted. I, I've had enough of that to last a lifetime. So that was something that really worked for me. And I have learned so much about myself in recovery. Um, you know, working the steps has helped me to get to know myself so much better and to understand my patterns of behavior. Um, I'm certainly more aware of my own character defects, and I just keep striving to improve myself and, you know, keep trying to practice the principles of, of this program. And, you know, I've got these great tools to use, and, and that's just incredible. And, of course, I haven't, you know, worked <laughs> a perfect program, and, it took me over three years to finish working the 12 steps for the first time, and I'm so grateful for my very, very patient and caring sponsor who's always there for me. And, you know, when I would go a while, she would be like, okay, it's time for you to, to work your steps, and just always been there for me and uh, been really accepting of me. And, and, and that was just really important, having a sponsor. And I also know that there's no such thing as a perfect program and that comparing myself to others or worrying about what others think about me isn't healthy. Um, and, you know, as you guys probably know from hearing me on these lines, progress, not perfection, it is my favorite MA saying. And it's something that, that I, I try to think about all the time. Um, and there are times that I think back. I think back about all those cringeworthy things that I did and said when I was high. And um, all those times I was high at work and everyone knew it because I could barely string together a coherent sentence or all the multiple little minor car accidents I had from driving high where, thank God, I didn't, you know, kill myself or hurt myself or anybody else. 
you know, all the multiple times I would, you know, lock my keys in the car, leave my wallet somewhere, just, just the many, many inappropriate things I said because I would blur out everything that crossed my mind with no filter. And, you know, I think about those things, and instead of beating myself up about all the embarrassing and humiliating things, I think about, um, the, you know, we have our own promises, but one of the things I really got out of the AA program was the AA promises. And uh, two of the AA promises that have always spoken to me are that we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, and that no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experiences can benefit others. So I remember that a lot when I, when I start to feel bad about the past, that I, I don't need to regret it or shut the door on it. And I wish I could remember, I don't remember exactly when my obsession to stop using marijuana was lifted, but the miracle is that my obsession was lifted. And that for me is the strongest evidence of a higher power working in my life. Because when I was in those throes of addiction, I would never have imagined I would be free of that overwhelming urge to use. Um, and that's the hope that I'm offering any newcomer that is listening tonight, that if someone like me can not only stop smoking, but no longer have to desire to smoke, even in the worst of circumstances, but that can happen for you too. And I offer that hope. And I know I'm always going to be an addict, and I, I still have using dreams. And, and I even occasionally have that thought about smoking, especially if I smell it somewhere. And just for that brief moment, you know, I can romanticize the idea of getting high and think that it might be fun, like it started out being all those years, years ago. And deep down in my gut, I know it's not ever going to be an option for me, and that those thoughts are just visitors in my head, and that's all they are. And I have recovery tools to use so I don't ever have to act on those thoughts. And I'll go ahead and end with this. Um, you know, I talked about doing service by chairing a meeting. And to me, the most important part of our meeting script is our responsibility statement. And that says, I am responsible. Whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of Marijuana Anonymous to be there. And for that, I am responsible. And that is the essence of what this program is. It's one marijuana addict reaching out their hand to another. And, you know, I started out telling you that um, I missed out on everything I needed to know that I should have learned in kindergarten. Um, and the way that that reading ends is, and it is still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. And that is something that I learned in Marijuana Anonymous and um, I'm just so grateful for this fellowship and especially for the phone lines. And um, I want to thank you guys for listening. And I want to thank all of you that have helped me to stay sober and that continue to help me stay sober. Thank you.